0: The contents of the lab report are meant for educational purposes only. They are not meant to be misconstrued as medical diagnosis or treatment advice. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Today on The Lab Report, Dr. Jeffrey Bland. (laughs) Patty, Speechless.
0: The world of medicine can be challenging. Clinicians and patients are always looking for more options, more effective treatments, and in the end, more answers. Functional and integrative medicine focuses on addressing root causes of disease. Here at Genova Diagnostics, we've watched this field evolve and grow for over 35 years. We've not only adapted, we've led. Join us as we talk about functional medicine, laboratory testing, and optimizing health. Welcome to The Lab Report.
1: Pancakes or waffles?
0: Oh, waffles.
1: Oh, totally. Right? We're in agreement. Thank you. What? It might be the only food that functionally harnesses its garnish. <laughs> Hello!
0: Functionally harnesses its garnish. That's what I said. Hi, Michael Chapman.
1: How's it going, Patty Devers?
0: It, it, it can't, it, I'm having a hard time with words today.
1: <laughs> I'm on my game.
0: <laughs> I'm nervous because Dr. Bland is coming. Now you bring up functionally harnessing garnishes. Name
1: another food that does that. Uh, let me think. I'll wait all day. You're not going to find one.
0: Yeah, it's just waffles. You're right.
1: Anyway, welcome to this podcast called The Lab Report, brought to you by Genova Diagnostics, where we talk about things like functional medicine, specialty lab testing, integrative therapeutics, and the father of functional (laughs) medicine, Dr. Jeffrey Bland,
0: is here today. If you are new to the show, welcome. And if you're returning, thank you so much for your support. And we hope that you'll go to iTunes or Spotify and subscribe to the show, maybe rate, review, share it with your friends.
1: Yes, that would be helpful. Mm -hmm. Do that. If you have additional feedback and you would like to share it,
0: you can send it to podcast gdx.net. That's our email address. Yeah, Michael, I'm a little bit nervous about today. Yeah, Because me too. Dr. Me too. Jeffrey Bland is, he's the father of functional medicine. He's the legend. Yeah. And we're going to talk to him today.
1: I can't believe it. I'm super pumped up about this. In fact, so pumped up that I don't i don't think we should spend any time no, talking. No, like, no. People bantering. don't want to hear us. They do not. They want to hear from Dr. Bland.
0: Well, and let's call him up.
1: We're just lucky to have him, so we should certainly get right to it. You agree, don't you?
0: Yeah. Okay. Michael. Yes. He's here. I can't believe it. (laughs) I'm so just blown away. I'm blown away. (laughs) Dr. Jeffrey Bland is here. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Dr. Bland and perhaps live in a cave, right. Dr. Jeffrey Bland is known worldwide as the founder of the functional medicine movement. His pioneering work has created the Personalized Lifestyle Medicine Institute and the Institute for Functional Medicine, the global leaders in functional medicine education. Dr. Bland began his career as a professor of biochemistry at the University of Puget Sound. He contributed greatly to the founding and accreditation of Bastier University. In the early 1980s, Dr. Bland was hand-selected by two-time Nobel laureate Linus Pauling to serve as director of nutritional research at the Linus Pauling Institute of Science and Medicine. As an expert in science-based nutrition, a field he helped to establish, Dr. Bland has become an iconic figure in the natural products industry. He worked alongside other founders to establish standards for evidence-based formulations, quality ingredient, ingredient sourcing, and ethical manufacturing practices that stand to this day. Dr. Bland is the author of several best-selling books and over 120 peer-reviewed research publications. He is a renowned speaker and teacher. His latest project is Big Bold Health, launched in 2018, which advocates for the power of immunorejuvenation to enhance immunity at a global level. This effort encompasses his active stance on regenerative agriculture, environmental stewardship, and planetary health. And with that, we are honored, Dr. Bland. Thank you
1: so much for being here, Dr. Bland. Wow. Thank you. That's uh, Gee whiz. I can live up to that billing. That's uh, quite (laughs) impressive. Thank you.
0: Well, well, I mean,
1: so first of all, I I think it's easy to say that without your dedication and your vision, um, you know, perhaps... Functional medicine wouldn't even necessarily nope. be a thing. Like, we wouldn't be, like, <laughs> my alma mater, Bastyr University, might not even be an accredited school. So, like, thank you so much for everything that you've done over the years. And I, I it makes me wonder, like, as the elder statesman and father of functional medicine, what's it been like to see this field expand and grow as much as it has?
2: Well, you know, I, as as I'm sure in both of your lives, you found out uh, from your experience, you start off with an idea. Mm-hmm. And then you think, well, this is a pretty good idea. Maybe somebody else might think this is a good idea. And you try it on with some of your close friends and you see if it resonates and if it, it looks like it's receptive and you say, okay, well, it passed the first level. Now let's see if it can be um, sticky with a greater number of individuals. So mm-hmm. I think I was very, very fortunate uh, early on when we kind of conceptualized this idea of functional medicine and the systems biology approach to healthcare. That the group of people I had around me were close friends and colleagues that brought different talents and backgrounds, both clinical and, and from the science world, and we're all um, self-reinforcing. You know, they're kind of people that say, "Let's start with an idea and think it's good until proven otherwise." Right. Other than the other kind <laughs> of people we often meet that think, "Well, it's going to be proven bad until otherwise." Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I got a lot of positive reinforcement. You know, I'm talking about the late '80s and and 1991, when we actually formed the Institute for Functional Medicine, knowing that this is the 30th anniversary year this Mm -hmm, year, 2021. um, These were individuals that picked up ideas. They put their own personal stamp on it. They worked together collegially, the the women and men that were kind of the founding people of this um, movement. And then I just kind of uh, got into the flow with this group because the group had its own dynamic its own energy it it built its own enthusiasm and i was just the recipient of the greatest fortune to be involved with a group of people that i uh, if i would have had the chance to um, look at individuals i want to be associated with they were all in this group Mm -hmm. so it it just is kind of self-replicated over the decades now
0: awesome where do you see it going where do you see the field growing and evolving as we move forward
2: well, I think there is, a, there is a principle of rightness about the concept. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it, there's mm-hmm. no one concept that fits all needs, but I think in this time where we started to recognize that disease as a concept is just a placeholder for trying to understand the origin,
3: mm-hmm.
2: um, that just not defining what a path, pathology is, but actually asking where did it come from is, is now the question of our age, that this model that we were developing now 30 years ago is a like a virus in the nervous system of the healthcare institutions. Right. Can't get away from it. It's an infection. Right. The idea actually has a principle of rightness about it, and how it will then grow up to be encompassing, uh, so that it becomes the best of medicine. It's a theme. I don't care what you call it. It's a, it's a concept that can cut across all these disciplines from the most. Um, a pathology focus to those that are in, in focusing on, on health and how do we really not just treat a terminal disease, but how do we get people to live a healthy life? I think that the concept will live on and, and it will be picked up by many others who will say they invented it and it was their idea. <laughs> right. And I, I really don't care where it came from or what you call it, just right. so that it has its ability to, to create goodness in, in, in uh, preventing unnecessary um,
0: illness. Agree, agree.
1: Well, you know, this past year has been trying for all of us. And, you know, what's becoming clear on the back end of the pandemic is the role of functional medicine uh, and its approach to disease and health optimization. Can you talk to us about the current state of the functional medicine approach as it relates to COVID and now the so-called long-haul COVID? Um, What should our clinicians expect and look for and how should we proceed with these long-haul patients?
2: Yeah, boy, that's really the question of our our day, isn't Mm -hmm. it? Uh, For me, this is a little bit of a deja vu all over again experience. Because um, when I think back to my earlier years, when I started at the Pauling Institute, I took a couple of years sabbatical from my university position to work with uh, Dr. Pauling and his colleagues in Palo Alto. Um, I just happened to be there in 1981, two and three, which was the start of HIV AIDS in Mm -hmm. San Francisco. And I recall so clearly the first um, exposure that I had to it was a lecture given by a young physician who was the first physician, I believe, in America to diagnose Kaposi's sarcoma at the um, Hospital gen- uh, San Francisco General Hospital. Hmm. And of course, at that point, no one really knew exactly w- what this was and where it came from. And then I saw what happened over the subsequent years with the um, the fear and all the pathos and all the extraordinary impact that it had on our culture um it, it was an uh, i guess you would call it now in light of of the number of people that have been um affected by it it was a pandemic uh, globally and i think i read a a number that said there are 35 million people that have died of aids 35 million oh, people
3: yeah. wow. and
2: for a lot of people today it's it's kind of like out of sight out of mind mm-hmm. yeah but but it really is still a very real thing mm-hmm. and by the fortune of all sorts of um, tortuosities and discoveries and political and economic battles, um, we now consider it a manageable viral infection. If you can have access to uh, the drugs available or you use good public health measures, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, it's a preventable disorder. So when I saw the start of this COVID and I saw that it was a pandemic laid on top of a pandemic The the existing pandemic was a compromise immunological status of so many people due to these what we call comorbidities, which are really just a sign of a poor health resilience. Mm-hmm. So you lay then this virus on top of poor health resilience. And now you've got this, this thing that takes off and it's most affecting those that are socially and medically disadvantaged and, and uh, people that don't have access to quality care on uh, on many levels. Um, you start recognize this is like uh, how the aid HIV AIDS thing started. Oh. Mm-hmm. And it, it also relates to this condition that still is with us called chronic fatigue syndrome, which, mm-hmm. by the way, came up about the same time in the 80s that we started to see HIV AIDS. So there was this, this whole a constellation that there are factors that associate themselves not only with the immediacy of infection, but the latent effects that go on for decades after the infection, uh, that we call chronic illness, and that was—I um, recall speaking uh, at a, a meeting in, in 1987 with Dr. Scott Rigdon on the work we, we had been doing on chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, and it was ridiculed and strongly criticized by this, the infectious disease branch of our government, saying there wasn't such a thing as chronic fatigue syndrome, mm-hmm. and and now we see, uh, you know, some 30 years later or 27 years later that it is a real thing, it does exist. We still don't know the cause because the cause is pleiotropic. It's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. It's people's immune system status associated with environmental exposure, some of which may be viruses, other chemicals and poor nutrition and stress. And all these factors together give rise to an alteration. And and what we talked about, I'm I'm kind of proud of this. We were the first people to start talking about mitochondrial dysfunction.
0: Wow. That
2: that was in 19... um, I gave my first seminar on pathies in 1987. Wow. And, and when I was speaking of that, you know, people thought, well, that's just an organelle that's in cells and <laughs> who cares about that, you know? Right. But but now um, we start to recognize that these, uh, these effects that come from multifactorial exposures influence our bioenergetic machinery and that these mitochondria have their own genetic information coming from our mothers, mm-hmm. uh, not our fathers. We're more than 50% genetically our mothers. And those influence in our ability of our body to mount resilience because our immune system is powered by our mitochondria, our cell rep, or rep, or repair is powered by our mitochondria. And if you start injuring mitochondria, you start lowering your resilience and your ability to respond to stress. So I, I think all of these things that we learned in the eighties the nineties, and the two thousands, you ask what form of healthcare is most prepared to deliver with post COVID-19? Mm -hmm. And it's not traditional uh, crisis care medicine. It's really those of us that have been in this chronic care milieu for the last 30 to 40 years that understand this etiology and this complexity and what to do with it. So I think this is a great opportunity for professionals in our field to provide service at a time of need where really it's not going to be one drug to treat one condition that's going to lead to the remediation of uh, post-COVID syndrome. Sure. I love it. I
0: love it. I love it. Well, in addition to all of your your work here with the Long Haulers and COVID, your latest venture, Big Bold Health, focuses on immunity and rejuvenation. So can you talk to us a little bit about why you chose to focus on this concept of personalized immunity and what exactly that means?
2: Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I, I, we all try to learn from our experiences and try to say, if I'm going to make mistakes, Hopefully, uh, they're not the same mistakes I made earlier in my life, and I can learn from those experiences. So for me, as I kind of um, rounded up uh, what I've learned uh, about health, I've learned that health is really a reflection of the the legacy of our genes. Whatever those 23 pairs of chromosomes give us as our book of life. Mm -hmm. But the book of life really is not cast in stone as to how it's going to be read and interpreted it's going to be read and interpreted in different ways so that the book is not like fixed it's dynamic based upon the experiences like if you read a book on the on the uh, rim of the grand canyon on sunrise that same book read in prison might give you a different uh feeling right, right. right. The interpretation the words would be the same but the response to it might be very different
3: mm-hmm.
2: so when I think of, thought about that and ask, you know, what are those things that we have had that influence how our book of life is read? Um, and how does that get translated into how we look, act and feel, so-called our phenotype? And what I recognize is that there are really only three ways that that information from the outside world is translated in, in the inside function. One is the nervous system that's on 24, 7, 365 surveillance. Mm-hmm. The second is our microbiome, which is this uh, translating series of organisms that translate what we are eating and drinking into our body's immune system function. Mm -hmm. And the third is our immunity, which is sampling 24-7, 365, our outside world and our inside world and giving us intelligence to our genes as to how they should respond, how how our book of life should be read. And when I started thinking about that, I thought, the most dynamic of those processes um, in terms of making substantive change in the hardwiring of how our book of life have read is the the immune system. Because our immune system completely turns over about every two months, Hmm. meaning the cells that are in our immune system floating around our body, every two months are different cells than they were previous two months Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. now the question is are they cells working as well as the previous cells, work worse than the previous cells or better than the previous cells? Mm
3: -hmm.
2: and there has been this view I think throughout much of time that our immune system never gets better it only gets worse as we grow older so age is not good for our immune system and in general that's true if you look at the data in both animals and humans aging is associated with declining or altered immune function Mm -hmm. however It's now been discovered over the last 10 years that uh, that's not always true. There are ways that the immune system can rejuvenate itself. And if its rate of rejuvenation exceeds the rate of declination Mm -hmm. or um, alteration, uh, damage, then you're actually going to have an improved immune system. You're going to roll back the immune age. And now there is data actually showing that immunosenescence can be reversed true wow. immuno rejuvenation wow. now for me at my age my chronologic age that's a really good thing to think about <laughs> how do you actually roll back all yeah. those bad experiences that your immune system had had when you were younger <laughs> to create in a more vital responsive um juvenile immune system
3: hmm.
2: and that to me that just struck me as is a worthwhile uh, project in the years remaining i have professionally to focus on so uh, when i was Speaking to my colleagues here, um, they thought, well, that's a pretty bold idea and you're a big guy. So maybe we <laughs> ought
1: to call this Big World Health and go for it. So perfect. That's, that's the, it's the perfect. Concept.
0: I love it. <laughs> perfect, perfect name. That's great.
1: Well, I mean, another thing that's super inspiring is environmental stewardship is also a big passion of yours. Um, you've talked about global immunity as it relates to the sea and the sky, for example. How does that relate to personalized immunity in your opinion?
2: Yeah, thank you. Another really great question. So taking this immune metaphor, this, this concept of the immune as our sampling device for looking at the outside world and responding to it, um, I then started to ask the question, are we unique in that respect to or this relationship that we have to our immune system to the outside world? And when I started to think about that, I saw no, all animals have immune systems. Then I started looking at plants, and plants have immune systems. Right. Now, they, they're not exactly the same as our circulating lymphoid cells in our body, but they are immune system uh, mimics that produce the ability of a plant to withstand against the pressures of the environment. When you think about mm. a plant, a plant doesn't have the same facility we have to come in from out of the sun or mm-hmm. bad weather or get away from a bug. We can you know, go inside and go behind a Enclosed closed environment, a plant just has to stand there and take it.
3: Right.
2: Right. So it so it has to have a really, really adept way of defending itself against sunburn, against cold, against uh, drought, against insects, against mold. So it has a very adaptive immune system. Many plants that uh, live in the, in the natural environment have very adaptive immune systems. And their immune systems are to a great extent expressed Uh, not so much through white blood cells, but through chemicals that they produce, these secondary metabolites called biochemicals. They become part of their immune system. So a plant's immune system is related to things like polyphenols, glucosinolates, isoflavones, and all these various uh, secondary metabolites they make are there to defend them uh, like our immune system does uh, us against the environment. And then I started thinking, well, gee, what about bacteria? Well, bacteria have an immune system as well and we've learned a lot about the bacteria immune system recently it's called um crispr the, the crispr cas 9 enzyme system that bacteria have is actually their immune system that allows them to repair damaged dna and things that come from viral infections because bacteria can be infected by viruses mm-hmm. so it have it has to defend itself and it has its immune system even single celled bacteria mm-hmm. then i started thinking well hold on, if that's true and what about the planet? Does does the do global structures have immune systems if to defend themselves against change? Wow. So now we have the carbon cycle, the oxygen cycle, wow. the cycle, the hydrology cycles. These are the planetary immune systems. Wow. So all these things, and then we say, well, what about the soil? Does the soil have an immune system? Of course it does. It has the mycorrhizal, you know, fungal bacterial community that protects it, its its own immune system. So this construct of immunity plays across all these different uh, themes. So a healthy human immune system depends upon a healthy planetary immune system. And and so they're all interconnected. It becomes, uh, I think, a meeting ground for people from many, many different disciplines
1: who are all trying to achieve peace, harmony, and health. At every level.
0: That's that's profound, Dr. Bland. I love that.
1: Yeah. And it's, uh, we tend to think of, you know, environmental stewardship too in the form of like the web of life, like being specific to the food chain and not necessarily to these other subtle components that also determine entities and organisms Mm -hmm. or society's health.
2: Thank you. I think that was really beautifully stated. You know, we, we, again, I think functional illness has taught me over the last three decades about how to train my. Thinking to be systems
3: thinking.
2: Yeah. Mm. We are trained in school, most of us, to think digitally. Like there's a right or wrong answer. Or it's mm. a true or false, and so we are just looking for the response to that specific question and never thinking of the context. So why was that question even asked? Right. What does that question connect to? What are the other parts of the of the net of understanding that if I think about that, it makes then the answer to that specific question a obvious. And probably less important than I used to think it was.
3: Right, right. Yeah,
0: it's great. Well, as part of Big Bold Health and all that you have, this amazing project that you have going on over there, we know that you also have some superfood projects. Can you tell us a little bit about your favorite products there and why they're different? And I think we, Michael and I could probably guess because we follow you on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so we follow all of these products. But tell us a little bit about why those products are different and which are some of your favorites.
2: Well, we, we happened on, or maybe I should say I, I happened on, but it was really more of a collaborative process, um, into two interesting things that were both serendipitous. And, and as I grow older, I recognize that the term serendipity is kind of a misnomer because we think that happens by chance, but I don't believe there's a lot that happens by chance. I think we're woven into the fabric that leads us into what we think is chance. But it's, it's more likely that it would have happened because we're in that environment. Mm-hmm. And so um, the first uh, observation for me came through my uh, hobby, my family hobby of boating. Um, I was up in Alaska, and a boat came in next to our boat, um, uh, which was a beautiful fishing boat. Um, and I had never seen that kind of design. I got talking to the skipper and he introduced me then to the owner. And that led us into a discussion. He was a Dutch Harbor, Aleutian Islands um, fishing fleet cap, uh, captain. And um, the, the bottom line is that they w- were producing uh, fish products by a sustainable mechanism on fish on, on a hook and line, bringing in no bycatch. And they were then capturing these fish on board and processing them within 20 minutes of a live fish mm-hmm. and, and then freezing them at minus 10 degrees so they they wow. had a really premium product and they were right. able to sell these fish fillets in the high-end restaurants that were actually better than fresh yeah. wow. because we know that fresh fish unless you're catching the fish yourself and eating it fresh is not really fresh it mm-hmm. goes into, into you know some kind of uh, ice and then it gets probably three to four days later to where it's offloaded and so it's, it's not really as fresh as you might think it mm-hmm. is to be mm-hmm. so um he then said to me he said well uh, you know, but there's one problem with this uh, because we were able to get a sustainable fishery uh, that was approved by the government. But we have about 25 percent of the fish that we don't know do with, and we have to we have to cut it up and throw it back into the water because it's waste.
3: Hmm.
2: And I said, "Well, what's that waste?" And he says, "Well, it's it's unsalable part of the fish, and basically, fish guts." And so I said, "Well, what's in your fish guts?" Mm-hmm he looked at me and he says, well, what do you mean what's in my fish cuts? I said, fish cuts. I said no, I, I, what are the bioactive molecules in your fish cuts? And he looks at me and he, he laughs. He says, hey, I'm a fisherman. I'm not a chemist. And I said, well, I'm a chemist, but not a fisherman. So why don't you send me some of your fish cuts, some frozen fish cuts? Which he did. And when we did an analysis on that, we found there was all sorts of very interesting biomolecules. Hmm. So he and I then formed a partnership saying, let's see if we couldn't build a plant to extract out these interesting... Uh, bioactive ingredients. rather than throwing them back in the water, let's see if we can't make them value added. So wow. that led to the development uh, of the first ever pharmaceutical grade manufacturing facility in Dutch Harbor, Alaska, where the deadliest catch go out of. Mm. And, uh, that allowed us then to produce a series of products um, that retain all the complex uh, ingredients that were in the original, in this case, oil products. Um, so we have pro-resolving mediators and we retain all the vitamins and we retain all the different uh, members of the omega-3 family. And so we started to produce, I think, uh, a, a series of oil products that have never been seen before because no one had this system where they caught the fish live in the frozen and keeping everything frozen right through manufacturing, never get above hundred degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and, and so now we have this interesting uh, kind of sustainable ingredients from this, this fishery up in Alaska. So that was number one. Okay. Then number two, as a consequence of a, again a coincidental um, introduction, uh, I was introduced to this product called Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat, mm-hmm. which is a very very different than common buckwheat. Uh, they they don't they are genetically related, but they are not the same. Uh, and Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat, it turns out, its genes produce about. Somewhere between 50 and 100 times the amount of phytochemicals that are immune active than does common buckwheat, Mm -hmm. and no one, as far as I could tell, knew about Himalayan tartar buckwheat in the United States, other than one farmer that the Treasury, my colleague, actually located on the internet. Um, He and his wife, who was a nurse, he was retired Cornell University egg professor, investigator, researcher, and they had a little family farm in. Angelica, New York, upstate New York, uh, that was producing this Himalayan Tartary Buckwheat, just a few acres. And they would sell it at our Chisna little sort of roadside stands mm-hmm. up in the summer in, mm-hmm. in New York. And so we contacted him. And it turned out that about that same time, I had been invited to go to China to speak at the uh, annual meeting of the um, health check centers in China. There were about uh, something like 2,000 health check Check centers that uh, doctors oversee. They're like primary care centers, mm-hmm. and they have an annual meeting. and I went, and I was invited to speak about functional medicine. It was in, up in Harbin, China, the northernmost big city, about twenty eight million people, believe it or not. Right. In this mm. city, right between North Korea and Russia. Wow. Wow. And um, my my host was um, a Chinese gentleman from Shanghai, but he also had uh, uh, got his PhD, gotten his PhD from the United States. Spoke very good english and, and lived both in the united states and china and so we got talking and on on the ride back to shanghai we decided to take the bullet train 2200 miles at 300 miles an hour across china which was quite a trip Whoa. yeah wow. and um we got talking and, I, and about halfway across, i I, turned and I said you wouldn't have to know anything about uh, himalayan Tartary buckwheat would you
3: <laughs> and it
2: was if we freeze framed the, the the train, is it likely stopped and he looked up at me and he says I can't believe it. You know about Himalayan tartary buckwheat? And I said, well, I I'm, i don't know a lot about it, but I'm very interested in it. We've contacted this farmer, and I'm really interested in pursuing He says, well, you are talking to the person who has run the company that has done more research on, on the phytochemicals in Himalayan tartary buckwheat here oh, in come China. On. Than Cuba. Oh, come on. <laughs> absurd. That, How is that absurd. possible? No. Goes, and to make it even <laughs> more aha, uh-huh, he says, and we're collaborating with Dr. Naji Anduran, Head of Surgery at Vanderbilt University in, in uh, uh, um, Tennessee, um, on research of the phytochemicals in Himalayan turtle buckwheat because they discovered a unique phytochemical that only they have known about called 2-hydroxylbenzylamine that seems to be very powerful on the immune system and regulating um, uh, blood pressure and other functions. and We've been looking for someone in the United States that could speak about this and could understand it, so we developed a partnership between my farm now, wow. friend Salt Lake in in um, Angelica, New York. Now we have a regenerative organic agriculture cooperative growing Himalayan tartary buckwheat. Yeah. and we then and I never thought we owned tractors and we own a wow. combine and we're 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 um, we're part of part of them totally. and uh, we have this cooperative and then we developed a relationship with a artisanal miller because milling this uh seed it's not a grain it's a seed it's it's very uh challenging because it's a very probably how it survived all these it's by the way it's just been a food for 2500 years in the himalayan region of of, um, uh, asia Mm -hmm. and milling it is very complicated because of the toughness of the um of the husk. Mm-hmm. So we've got this artisanal miller that's developed a speci- specific process. It doesn't go to high temperature, so we don't lose any of the uh, valuable phytochemicals. So it's a cooperative now between the farmers that are, we're the first organically certified regenerative agriculture producing Himalayan tartary buckwheat ever in the world, mm-hmm. along with our miller, along with our research group in Vanderbilt and our group in China. And that's now our, our next uh, thing is uh, immune rejuvenation.
0: The that's stars amazing. have aligned for you, sir. <laughs> what an amazing story. I know. I mean,
1: both stories. Amazing. Right. Um, wow. Yeah. You know, so talk a little bit about PLMI because this is such a great resource of education and leadership within functional medicine. And in response to the pandemic, you've moved your conferences online and made them free, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. What's what's the feedback been like as it relates to the changes in conference learning with all that's been going on in the world?
2: Oh boy. Um, this has been a really powerful learning experience for, for me personally and, and for our group. Uh, you know, I've been involved with uh, professional education now since the middle 70s. So I, I've got quite a history of, of doing comparisons with a, with me as kind of a study person. Mm-hmm. And this uh, this COVID situation has been so tragic and, and so uh, horrendous, but on the other side, there is some things that have happened as a consequence that are positive. Mm-hmm. One of which is it has forced people into their computers and doing more education work virtually. Um, and because I've been involved with this education uh, process for so long, it, I just, it was the right time and place for me. And so we, um, we decided uh, in December of last year that uh, there was an unmet need. And maybe what we needed to do is upramp our educational offerings. And the way to do that was to do as many value-added educational things around managing COVID and the immune system and make it free of charge in all comers. And um, and I'm in, I'm in a, a probably a very uh, what I want to call it fortunate situation. I don't have a formal job. I, I don't have to do anything other than what I want to do. And I can't blame anything for my life not going well because it's all totally <laughs> under my control. So if I have a bad day, it's my own fault. <laughs> so um, I basically talked to our group and I said, let's just make this year's activities. Um, free of charge all comers and and then uh, funded internally uh, by our own activities. And uh, so we were able to do that. And I'm amazed because we're averaging now in our um, education programs this year, over 2000 uh, participants per event,
3: wow. which
2: we never could have done having these all on site in mm-hmm. the past ways that you run a meeting at a hotel. Mm-hmm. Not to say that there's not good things about those events. We need those. That's an interaction that's very, very important for peer support and building um, relationships. But for getting information out and stimulating a broader um, uh, kind of network, this has proved to be very, very successful, and what we have found, much to our pleasure is that we're getting something greater than 60 percent of the attendees of our meetings this year are first ever people to our meeting
0: great um
2: and so uh, we are really broadening our reach and and i think what i'm good at i like to think anyway that i'm good at opening the door for people to get into this field so that others with with different skills can then educate and and to mentor and proctor and and certify and so I like to think of myself as the ambassador, the kind of the connector,
3: yeah
2: and cool. and we're I think uh, we're very pleased that we're seemingly being successful uh, by the end of this year because we're doing nine events this year I, I think we'll we'll have touched um, oh you know more than twenty thousand people with seventy percent will be new professionals at first time to our field that's so okay. that's yeah. pretty that exciting. Is.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic. That so that's good. fantastic. I mean, this type of medicine, there's so many patients out there that need it. I mean, that the, the dis- chronic disease rates, you know, despite better efforts, they they are still staggering. So, you know, the more people that we can uh, hear this message, the better, right?
2: That's, that's what I feel. You know, I, I often say that what we do is not like selling something that a person doesn't want or need. There is a fundamental truth that is sustainable and time, timeless to what we're trying to say. We just need to put it out there in a way that makes sense to a person. There are those people who are critical, who you know find their own reasons to take exception to what we're saying. But I've been around long enough to say that most of those people over time, they get lost in the woodwork because there's some sustaining truth now to four decades mm-hmm. of saying what we've been saying. And, I, and we're not always right, you know. I, I believe in the 80% rule, um, but I think that we're we're better than 80%. If you go back and you trace back to what we were talking about in the late 70s and early 80s, when we started talking about gastrointestinal restoration and leaky gut syndrome and dis, uh, dysbiosis, those were terms that people criticized us so uh, vehemently about. Now they're in the traditional medical literature all the time and they're considered like the new ideas. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that there's some essence of truth that I will stand on as to what we've been doing that will be timeless. That's I love that's it. how it. that's yeah. right. That's,
0: that's great. great. Well, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, we can't thank you enough, not only for all that you've done yes. for functional medicine, but for us personally and our own personal journeys in functional medicine mm-hmm. as well. Right. And we're so grateful that you came on the show with us. We want to encourage the audience to go check out all that's happening at Big Bold Health. Go watch Dr. Jeffrey Bland on social media make Pancakes with his buckwheat right? as <laughs> <That's laughs> we right. watched it. And of course to go to PLMI to get some amazingly free education there in functional medicine. And Dr. Bland, thank you so much.
2: That's been my great pleasure. And I love your enthusiasm. and I love your commitment. And <laughs> I also love your age because we need people coming up that's going to, are gonna be the standard bearers and and take this model and the baton forward and you're gonna be doing that. So thank you.
0: Thank you, thank sir. You. Thank Have you. a wonderful day.
2: Do the same. Bye-bye.
0: You know what, Michael? What's that? For the past year and a half, we've been talking about immunity, right? Mm-hmm, Ways mm-hmm. to optimize your immunity in the midst of a pandemic. I had never heard anyone talk about environmental stewardship and global immunity like that.
1: Yeah, it's pretty profound, you know? I mean, that's Dr. Bland. That he's like I like Systems biology. And at the end of the day, let's take the whole thing back to Gaia. Like, it's it's great.
0: Yeah, the guy just thinks on a whole different level. That's why he's the famous Dr. Jeffrey Bland.
1: Next time on The Lab Report, Ben freaking Greenfield. The
0: OG of biohacking.
1: BFG of BGF.
0: a lot of letters. You've been listening to The Lab Report. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast, rate us, and leave us a review. To learn more about Genova Diagnostics, visit our website at gdx.net. There you'll find information on specific testing, educational resources, and how to connect with our show. Call us at 1-800-522-4762 or email us at podcast at gdx.net.
1: And here's another thing. Uh When you're in the ocean and someone... Whether it be your daughter or basically anyone says the phrase, there's something in the water. <laughs>
0: not a good sign. That's, you
1: never want to hear that. Not a good sign. It doesn't matter what it could be. Right. It's likely not a good situation.
0: It's like when the dentist says, oops.
1: Right.